We're going to be in John chapter 9, verses 1 through 12. The title of this message is Healing the Blind. John chapter 9. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, as we hear the story of a blind man, I remember and I'm mindful that God, I can think that I see so clearly. I know Before I was saved by you, I thought I saw everything clearly. We are a people who are sure of what we see, but we are a people who need our sight healed. And so, Lord, I ask that as we look at your word, through the illumination of your Holy Spirit, that you would cause us to see what is true, what is right, what is beautiful, what is good. We say along with the men who came in the Gospel of John and said, I wish to say, I wish to see Jesus, that Jesus, we wish to see you this morning. Lord, I ask for your help in teaching. I ask that this would be helpful and edifying for your church. Thank you for your word, that it's perfect, that it's inspired, that it's inerrant. Lord, I ask that you would help me to faithfully proclaim who you are. I ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, I was reading uh, a bit of a commentary that I was uh, drawn to through a podcast I listened to. And the commentary was from the Wall Street Journal. It was written by a former Northwestern professor. This man had been a professor for years and he now writes periodically as an essayist for the Wall Street Journal, some other uh, some other organizations as well. And he wrote a piece called Today's College Classroom is a therapy session. Today's college classroom is a therapy session. It was kind of an interesting piece, uh, but there was one thing in particular that the podcast host I was listening to drew out within it, and that is where uh, the, the writer was quoted as saying uh, that one of the biggest lies teachers tell is this, how much one learns from his students. That that's one of the biggest lies teachers say is that I just learned so much 
from my students. Now, teachers out there, uh, I'm one of you. If you teach at a school right now, also, I just want to say props to you. Keep going. Uh, may the Lord strengthen you in these times. But we know this is actually, when we think about it, a true statement that if a teacher is constantly having their mind blown by their students, perhaps they shouldn't be the one teaching. He later says, now I had a few bright students in my day, but honestly, I can't recall exactly what they taught me that I didn't know before. Obviously, within this, he's not saying that he didn't learn about life and empathy and how to love through his students, but the subject he was instructing them in, he was actually well qualified to teach them. In John chapter 9, verses 1 through 12, we're going to see Jesus' disciples, those who are meant to sit at his feet, ask him a question. His disciples will ask their rabbi a question. And then we're going to hear an answer from the rabbi. Remember, rabbi, that word means teacher. Lastly, the thing we're going to see is that there's going to be a lesson in it for all of us. So that's how we're going to walk through this text together. Very simply, a question, an answer, and the lesson. And I just want to let you know, we're going to be spending heavy time on the first three verses because it's going to bring up a really big question that we need to spend some time thinking about. And the rest of the section of scripture is more narrative. And so we're going to walk through that in more of a narratival way, observing some things about Jesus Christ. So first, let's talk about a question. Verses one and two. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now the chapter begins as he passed by. And we aren't told exactly how much time has passed between this incident and the last scene. It could be just on the heels. It could be a little bit of time since the Jews were going to stone him for just saying that he already, Jesus already existed before Abraham equating himself with Yahweh. Uh, But on the heels of that story, now comes this story. On the heels of Jesus proclaiming that he is Yahweh, he's going to do an act healing a blind man that only Yahweh can do. And something I just want us to observe is the initiative that Jesus has in this story. You see, it is Jesus who sees a blind man. And it says that he sees a blind man from birth. Now, this is a congenital problem. This is something that he's been with his whole entire life. And it's not the disciples who come and point out to Jesus, do you see that blind man over there? Jesus already sees him. And while it's not clear at this point how Jesus knew, if it's just a, it's, it's just commentary by John letting us know the man was blind from birth or Jesus in his divine omniscience knew he was blind from birth. We do know from other parts of scripture that God knows all things about everyone, which I just want to state at the beginning of this sermon, as we're going to be talking about suffering some, as we're going to be talking about the problem of evil, as we're going to talk about sin and hardship, I do want you to know this. We don't know exactly how Jesus in this moment knew the man was blind from birth, but we do know from Psalm 139 
that God has numbered all your days. He's intimately acquainted with you, that his thoughts towards you are beyond measure. We know from John 4 that it's not unlike Jesus to know things about a person that no one else could know. And I can tell you from the testimony of scripture that God knows every detail of your life. He knows what's going on with you. Even when you feel like you can't quite explain everything going on, God knows and God understands. So Jesus sees this blind man from birth and then his disciples ask him a question about this man. Let's hear the question. They say to him, Jesus, who sinned? The man or his parents? Since he's blind from birth. Since he's blind, one of them have sinned. So who is it? They see the problem of suffering And they ask a question, but in asking the question, they offer only two options. They say, Jesus, Rabbi, was it this man who sinned or his parents? Now, the disciples, as much as we'd like to think, are much unlike us. We don't like to see, we would see a blind person and just blurt out, who sinned, this person or his parents? We too today offer some explanations for suffering that, are actually errors that are actually against biblical teaching about against the testimony of scripture. People offer reasons for suffering today. Let's talk about a few of them that are popular. The first one is just kind of the idea of karma that you do bad. So one day you're going to get bad that what you put in is what you get out that some people have an idea that we're reincarnated. Uh, Buddhism would teach this in Hinduism in that, uh, that in a previous life, if you lived a bad life, that's why you would suffer now in this life. The Jews at this time, they believed it was actually possible for a baby to sin in the womb. That's what the Jews believed. And so that's why they're able to say these people, the disciples right here, they buy into that idea apparently. Did this man sin in the womb? They, he had been born blind from birth. So it couldn't have just been a sin that he committed once he was uh, born, but they actually thought perhaps he was born, uh, he, he sinned in the womb and that's why he was born blind. First idea of karma, you get what you, you get out, what you put in, that's a wrong idea. The Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible says it's appointed unto a man once to die and after that face judgment. There, there is no such thing as reincarnation. We know that babies aren't able to sin in the womb. And God doesn't punish babies for some kind of idea of sinning in the womb. We don't just get what we uh, deserve at every moment. Um, We know that some people have lived a more righteous life and have suffered more than others from our perspective who have lived a wicked life and seem to prosper. We know that karma isn't, uh, isn't a sure thing. It's not a biblical teaching. A second reason uh, people ascribe for suffering is they say, you're suffering because of a generational curse. This is popular in some segments of the church. This is where the Jews say, this man's parents sinned. That's why he is blind. 
They said he, they must have done something bad and so then God cursed them. And some people would say, after all, you know, it says in Exodus that God will visit iniquity on the sons of the fathers, that he's gonna punish generations. Now, Exodus 20 verse five, it does say that, but it's actually speaking of that. The right way to understand that is the consequences of sins will affect your children. But it's not saying that God is sitting up in heaven and throwing down hexes and curses upon families. It's the natural outflow and hardships of sin that uh, when a husband uh, is unfaithful to his wife, that negatively affects the children. We, we all know that in the small things, when parents fight in front of the kids, it's not good for the kids. When parents divorce, it can be a very brutal thing for the children. When a mom is an alcoholic, it negatively affects the kids. That's the idea that sin has consequences going down to the next generation, that we do, our sins do affect one another, but there isn't an idea that God is throwing down hexes and curses upon families. We know from Ezekiel 18 verse 20 that uh, a son is not punished for the sins of his father, but if someone is punished, they're punished for their own sins that they are culpable for, that we individually are held responsible for the sins we have committed. A third idea for suffering in the world is that Satan is just running wild and that God is going behind him and doing cleanup. That this man was afflicted by Satan, some might think. And so then Jesus comes by and he says, well, I'm going to do something good now that Satan has already come here. As we talk about suffering and the reasons for suffering, perhaps we've already thought of the book of Job. Now we know from the book of Job that Satan must answer to God. That Satan is not have free reign on this earth to do whatever he wants. Even as he was afflicting Job, he had to go to God and God told him, you can do this and no more. We know from the Bible that Satan is not like the equal and opposite of God. Okay, Satan is a created being. God is the omnipotent creator. It is not the case that Satan is just running wild and then God is cleaning up afterwards, making something beautiful out of the mess. That's not true. It is true that Christ came to destroy the works of the devil, but ultimately anything Satan would do would be within the sovereignty of God. The fourth idea, the fourth idea, the one maybe maybe some of us are most prone to believe is that we suffer as immediate punishment for our sins. This is kind of the idea of Job's friends. They said, Job, come on, man. You're suffering right now. Your family's died. Your crops have failed. Your livestock are dead. What did you do? You had to have done something to deserve this. But friends, God does not deal with his children like that. We all can think of a time we have sinned uh, where we were not struck down by lightning, where we did not then receive um, a punishment from God. This isn't the way that God works with his children. Those are all wrong ideas of why we suffer. 
whether it's an idea of you you are suffering because of what you did in a previous life or generational curses, or that it's all just Satan and God has nothing to do with it, or immediate punishment. Those are all wrong ideas of why people suffer. The disciples ask the question, but within their question, they're doing something wrong already, and that is they're assuming it's either this or it's that. It's either this man sinned or his parents sinned, and that's why he is suffering. And Jesus, he's going to give an answer to their question, but we'd be really wise right here at this point to think and to apply how the disciples err in addressing suffering. The disciples show us a negative example of how to address suffering. We'd be wise as the people of God, as disciples of Christ ourselves, to learn from what they did wrong. The disciples erred in three ways that uh, we can see in the text. The first is in their position, in their position. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, what I mean is that they were to be disciples. The Greek word is methetes. It means a learner. You've heard the phrase, one who sits at the feet of a teacher. The position of a learner is to be humble in sitting and looking up to the teacher to receive what we don't know. The disciples within this, they thought that they already had the answer for the suffering. It was one of these two options. You tell us what it is. They, they probably had the wrong position. So we too can have the wrong position in approaching someone in suffering. Assuming we can minutely explain every detail of why they're going through what they're going through. The second, the second way they err is in the preconceptions they bring. They say, uh, they say, it's either this or it's that, Jesus. Either this man sinned or his parents. They brought in preconceptions in addition to not having the right position or posture. The third thing they do, and the third thing we can be tempted to do, is to ultimately kind of give a pat answer to suffering. And Rick Phillips, who helped me greatly in uh, study this week in his commentary, he talks about how we should avoid giving really pat answers to people as they're suffering. What I mean by that is the simple, you did this, so that happened. And what I mean is even with all the wisdom of the Bible, all of it in scope, even if we have all of that in our mind, we're not to offer simply a pat answer. This is why. But we as the people of God, as disciples of Christ, we are to offer compassionate answers. It's not to say that we have nothing to say to weak, needy, suffering, dying world. If that were true, it'd be a tragedy. But it is to say we're not to offer pat answers, but to offer compassionate answers. So how are we to speak? What are we to say to these things? Well, let's look to the rabbi and how he answers. Verse three, we see an answer. Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Jesus 
in reply to their question, was it this man or his parents? He replies, it was neither. And the rabbi here reveals that his disciples have a false dichotomy, a false dilemma. They're saying, was it this or that? And he says, that's the wrong question. That's the wrong two options. He's not blind because of his sin or his parents' sin. Now, this is not to say that these people are sinless. We know from the Bible, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Rick Phillips uh, astutely put it this way in response to the disciples' question, who sinned this man or his parents? Jesus could have rightly answered, Adam sinned. It wasn't him, it wasn't his parents, it was Adam. And that would have been true. That's not the answer Jesus gave in this moment, but that is a true statement from the Bible. It says in Romans that all in Adam have sinned, that we are born into this world with a sin nature. And so before we really dive into exactly what Jesus says right here, let's get a, a biblical scope, a biblical view of the reasons for suffering. Okay? The reasons for suffering in life. We could say first that suffering in general is because of sin. Which is to say if Adam and Eve had never sinned, there would be no death. There would be no sickness. There would be no relational strife. There would be no pain. There would be no curses in this world. That every form of suffering has occurred in general because sin has entered this world. Suffering in general is because of sin. We can also say, because the Bible does provide some examples, that specific suffering can be a result of sin. We have the example of Miriam getting leprosy in the Bible, that she rebelled against God and God did send leprosy because of that rebellion. That there are times, the Bible tells us, there is a specific suffering because of a specific sin. That does happen, but that's not always the case. That isn't always the case. And we would be unwise, like Job's unwise friends, to say every time someone's suffering, it's because there's something in your life that you did. Suffering in general is because of sin. Specific suffering can be a result of sin. Thirdly, suffering can be disciplinary action for God's children. Hebrews 12 says this. It says that, God does discipline his children as a loving father. He says, no, if anybody's not disciplined by their father, they're an illegitimate child, that God loves you so much and he loves me so much that he will at times in his love, not as a punishment, but as loving discipline to correct us and set us on the right way, discipline us. I know I've experienced this. I know that the things that I thought were just so wrong in life were actually God's loving discipline in my life to save me from further heartache and further pain. Those are some of the things the Bible does say about suffering. But here, Jesus says what is specifically true of this situation and what is actually ultimately true of every believer's suffering. And that is, this happened that, quote, the works of God may be displayed in him. 
That's what Jesus says. It's not that this man sinned or his parents sinned, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. This is both a hopeful answer and it's a humbling answer. It's hopeful because it means this. It means every ounce of suffering has purpose and it will reveal the glory and the works of God. It means that nothing in your life, believer, is meaningless. It means that for the Christian, cancer, heartbreak, economic difficulty, slander, persecution, various kinds of sicknesses. Every single ounce of suffering God purposes for your ultimate good. And when I say that, don't hear that it's simply just a mouthful of bad medicine right now that will ultimately do something good. But I'm talking eternity. I'm talking forever. I'm talking unending glory. You becoming conformed to the image of Christ more. Your ultimate good in God's glory. Nothing meaningless. Nothing purposeless. It is hopeful that Jesus says this happened, that the works of God might be displayed in him, but it is also humbling. And it's humbling because that wasn't really, that answer wasn't really in the scope of the question the disciples were asking. Because suddenly we realize Jesus is the rabbi and we truly are students. That if he he was out of class one day, it's not certain that we should be the one giving the lecture. Because we're finite and he's infinite because we are creatures and he, he is the creator. Because while I know the ultimate end of everything that happens in life is God's glory and the good of the believer. It's humbling because I honestly cannot explain in my new one-to-one detail why every person in our church has suffered in the ways they have. I don't know why some and not others face this difficulty and others Don't. I I know the ultimate end, but it doesn't mean that I can give an answer in this moment that just makes it easy. It's where we need to not offer just pat answers. We need to be people of compassion. Because when suffering hits your life, you realize as much as you do hold on to the truth and you hold a grip that is firm on that as God holds you tightly, doesn't always just make everything feel better in the moment. And these things are all true. But they're humbling. Even the answer itself is producing in us something good that we need. The question is why? Jesus' answer 
is that God's works might be revealed in us. So we've heard the question, who sinned, this man or his parents? We heard the answer, neither of them, but that the works of God might be revealed. But there remains a lesson for us. And here, we don't just get or give a theological question. Here, the lesson isn't just to have the right information downloaded into our brains. And that's because of the way God has actually worked in history. You see, Jesus came to us. God chose to send us not just like a perfect syllogism, which is a proof of logic, but rather he sent his perfect son. He gave us more than just head knowledge. He gave that which was in the father's bosom. He gave his own heart, the son of God for us. And so what I want us to do with the remaining time is to walk through these remaining verses and I want us to behold Christ. You know, theologians, they talk about the attributes or perfections of God. And they say, actually, this is how mind-blowing God is. That God, the one who has always been, when we see his kindness, when we see his love, when we see uh, his perfections, we're not seeing something different, different parts of God, but we're seeing God, as it were, a light shining on a jewel and we see a different facet of his beauty. And so too with Christ, as we see Christ in this, we're gonna see things as he moves each step. We're gonna find him to be like a jewel in the light turning and shining on each facet of the jewel. We're gonna see something beautiful in Christ that is unexpected that we wouldn't think of as we look at him. And so let's talk about the lesson. We had the question, we, we have been given the answer, but look at the lesson. The lesson is Jesus Christ because he is the wisdom of God and he is for us sanctification and he is truth. That truth isn't just words that we could write down on a paper, though God's word is all truth, that Jesus Christ himself is is the way and is the truth and is the life. And so let's walk through this and look at the beauty of Christ and all of his perfections. Verses four and five, the first thing we see in Jesus is an urgency of Christ. Jesus says, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Now, I would think the answer that God let this happen, allowed this purpose, this sovereignly so that the works of God might be displayed in him. I kind of think at that point, God would be far off and I need to accept that answer. But what I see to my own astonishment is an urgency in Christ. Jesus says, I'm the light. It's still daytime. I haven't left this world. Night is coming. We, he says to his disciples, we must work the works of God. We don't just tell 
people that God has a plan and do nothing. No, we go to people and we help. There are people in the world that have never heard the gospel and they must hear it. People who are blind that must be made known to what the gospel is so that they can see. We assume that he'd be far off. God would be far off because he always had a plan. But what we find out in the person of Jesus Christ is that it was always his plan to draw near to humanity. We, he says again, he says, we must do the works of God. And what I just want to point out is that God's sovereignty actually empowers service for people. It's not, if God's sovereignty makes you kick back and do nothing of service to God, you don't actually understand who God is. It's God's sovereignty that empowered missionaries to go to unreached people. It's God's sovereignty that allows us to go to family members who don't yet know Christ and be bold because he is able to save because he's powerful enough. It's why when we pray for our unbelieving friends, we say, God, save them. We don't say, Lord, just let them save themselves because we know God is the one in control. God's sovereignty empowers service. The second thing we see about Christ as he moves is the unique dealings of Christ. Verse six, having said these things. So he's just spoken, but now he says, after saying, I'm the light of the world, I'm the one who causes people to see, he does something. He spit on the ground and he made with the, and he made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seen. Okay, so there's a question that naturally comes up, which is why did he spit? Why did Jesus spit? And there's all kinds of different ideas. Some people say that there was an idea of blessing in the spit of a father. Other people um, say that he was going to try to make mud to try to make it really obvious that this man couldn't see at all. Like he's putting something over the eyes of a blind man to emphasize the meaning of the miracle. And what I think, uh, a couple other people see it too. It may be right, it may be wrong, but I see something in Jesus reaching down into the mud, into the dust of the ground, an allusion back to Genesis, where God formed Adam out of the dust of the ground. I see here something of God recreating humanity. And it's the spit that human activity that Jesus does. He who is both the son of man and son of God. It's his humanity and it's his divinity together joined, not mixed or separated, leading to a hope of a new humanity for those who are blind. We also see in here, why spit? Well, one one thing we can point out is Jesus didn't always do this. One time he, he actually spit on somebody's eyes. Another time he just healed with a touch. Another time he just said a word. Jesus healed in a variety of ways. 
And so there's not a formula for making God heal, okay? And if you have been seeking healing and you've been told something like you just don't have enough faith and you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ that he died on a cross for your sins and he rose from the dead and he's coming again and you know that God is able to do all things, let me tell you, it's a lie that you haven't been healed just because you don't have enough faith. God loves you. He knows what he's doing with your life. You need a mustard seed of faith in Christ. You need just enough to believe he is able to save. But back to the point that Jesus heals in a variety of ways. I think we can extrapolate from this that so too he leads and he deals with his people in a variety of ways. What I'm trying to say is don't be discouraged if your life right now looks different than your friends or your family. He knows what he's doing with you. Even in my own life, I can remember a time that looking back, I can say with some confidence, I was being disciplined for some of my own sin. And I saw friends who did the same exact sin who didn't have the same things happen in their life. And I praise God that he dealt with me the way he did. And I realize now what we'll see at the end of the gospel of John, where Peter is just restored to Jesus. And then Jesus tells him he's going to actually die a martyr's death. And Peter says, well, what about John? And Jesus says, don't, what is John to you? You don't worry about him. You follow me, Christian. Jesus knows what he's doing with you in your life. Don't be discouraged. He knows what he's doing. He does love you. He deals with his people in a variety of ways. He knows what he's doing. And yet, we also see in the blind man something that is in all of us. While it's true, he deals uniquely with all of our lives. We all have the same need. And that is that we have been blinded by our sin. We have been born blind. We have been groping about looking for the meaning of life, looking to please ourselves, looking to try to figure out what this is all about. And then for us as Christians, we heard from the Son of God that it's possible to be washed and to be able to have true sight. That we could come to one who could wash away our blindness, that could forgive us for our sins, that could heal us for our backsliding. In the blind man, we see the testimony of every single Christian. And that's the third thing we are to note in this last section is that we all have a testimony about Christ. I'm going to read the narrative. It's, it's a funny one. This guy's actually a real character in the gospel of John. This is what happens. He goes and he washes in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. And so it's astonishing what John's doing here. Uh, the sent one of God, Jesus, sends a blind man to the pool called Scent. 
right? And the pool is called, probably called scent because waters were sent in to it from uh, somewhere else. And he goes and he washes in it. And this is something only Yahweh can do. It says in Isaiah that one day God will heal the blind and they'll be able to see. And so the sent one sends the blind man to the pool called scent and then he comes back to his home seen. And here, look at the testimony of this man and find in it with me also the testimony we all have about Christ. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is, not, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it is he. Others said, no, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. I love that scene. I I just think it's kind of uh, funny how the people uh, are debating about who he is. And all the while he's saying, I'm the guy. They couldn't believe what God had done in his life. And here we see something interesting. is that Jesus has disappeared from the story. He's slipped away. Now this man is left and he has a story to tell. And so too, we have a story to tell. Where, where is Jesus? What has happened to you? These are the questions the man is being asked. And we need to have the same kind of heart and attitude he has. Can you imagine not seeing for all of your life and then being able to see? I saw a video this week of people receiving, uh, I think it's called a cochlear implant so that they can hear for the first time. It was amazing. I almost was bringing tears to my eyes. And then we think that the miracle that Christ has given spiritual sight and spiritual hearing to us, we have the same kind of story to be able to tell to others and we must tell them. We must do the works of God. But we might think, what do I say? What do I say? Because some people don't even believe something in me has changed. Some people didn't believe about this man that he was the same man. What do we say? Well, we say what he says. Who did this? The man called Jesus. That's what he says. What do we say? He says, look, I was blind, now I see. And people asked, well, where is Jesus? You tell us. And at this point, we have an advantage over the man because he didn't know where Jesus had went. But we know, and we know where he was ultimately going. He was ultimately going to go to the cross where he was going to pay for the sins the deeper problems than just physical blindness and physical deafness. Our sins against a holy God, he was going to bear in his body on the cross. And the sky was going to go dark on him. And there Jesus would hang. And then he would die and be buried in a tomb. But three days later, he would raise from the dead. 
so that he would die for our sins and be raised for our justification so that all who would believe in him, hear the gospel would be made to see as they believe. And the one who gave himself for them. And so we, we've covered a few different things this morning. We talked some about suffering and the reasons for it. I want to encourage us as a people to not, to not give really obvious pat answers to those suffering. If there's someone in your life that you know is hurting and you're even afraid to draw near, I just want to encourage you to go there, to draw near to them. Be willing to offer the truths of scriptures. Be willing also to sit with them. Remember, Jesus didn't just from heaven shout down some stuff. He reached down. He got his hands dirty. He put his hands in the guy's eyes with mud. In Jesus Christ, God has touched humanity in a healing way. I want to remind you that truly your present sufferings will in God's purposes have been purposed to reveal the glory of God, that the works of God might be displayed in your life. And knowing that, how could we not go and tell others? How could we not sit with the suffering and tell them of the hope of Jesus? Church, I love you. Let's prepare our hearts to sing to the one who has opened our blind eyes and caused us to see. Let's pray. Christ, I praise you that you have caused us to see by your grace. Would we go and tell others? And Lord, would you encourage us as we do need encouragement to remember that you're coming again. That now, we, now people would say, where is he? And we know you're ascended at the right hand of God, the Father. You're ruling, you're reigning, but you're coming back one day to fully establish your kingdom here on this earth. And we With every breath you give us, we want to go and serve you and tell others about you. Be your hands and be your feet. Now, Jesus, we want to offer back on this Lord's day a sacrifice of praise to the one who has healed us. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.